Welcome to the Leadership Development Group's Health Ecosystem Leadership Podcast Series. We're excited to have you join us. My name is Tracy Duberman. I'm the founder and CEO of the Leadership Development Group. We are a global coaching and leadership development consultancy with an exclusive focus in the health industry. Over the years, we've had the distinct pleasure of working with some of the brightest talent in our industry, leaders who are clearly making a difference in the work they do to provide high quality care for those in need while designing approaches to enhance health and wellness. The purpose of this podcast series is to showcase how leadership is the essential ingredient to address the ever-growing issues and challenges facing the U.S. healthcare industry. As we know through our work, the great majority of these challenges are too complex and wide-ranging for any one sector to solve independently. This is where a health ecosystem leadership approach pays more than significant dividends. Solutions which emphasize how the various sectors of the health industry operate interdependently are the only ones with the potential to deliver on critical imperatives like affordability, access, and outcomes. During this podcast series, we will introduce you to some of the best and brightest health ecosystem leaders who will share practical examples of how they have successfully demonstrated a collaborative mindset, as well as the critical behaviors that lead to positive outcomes for their organizations, their patients, and the communities they serve. Welcome to the podcast. Today, I am pleased to introduce you to Laura Landy, who is the president and CEO of the Ripple Foundation. She has guided the creation of Rethink Health and Foresight, Designing the Future for Health, the foundation's two flagship initiatives. Ripple seeds innovations in health by working with national and regional leaders to better see and execute systemic approaches that can transform our current system, one designed for another time, and create opportunities for better health and well-being for all. Rethink Health works with well-positioned stewards beginning where they are today, and Foresight looks ahead at future trends and emerging ideas and how they can accelerate transformative efforts. Laura has nearly four decades of experience addressing changing dynamics in health, higher ed, economic development, social services, and culture. Her professional career includes relationships with the Ford Foundation, Pfizer, New Jersey's Public Health System, AT&T's Bell Labs, the 92nd Street Y, Adelphi University, and others. She has served in leadership roles in many academic institutions, including creating the Institute for Nonprofit Entrepreneurship at NYU's Stern School of Business, helping both NYU's and Fairleigh Dickinson's entrepreneurial centers, and serving as adjunct faculty at Columbia University in the New School. She currently serves on the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health Board of Trustees and is a board member of Grant Makers in Health. Laura received her undergraduate degree from Washington University in St. Louis and her MBA from New York University and is a fellow of the New York Academy of Medicine. I am incredibly pleased and honored that you have chosen to join us today on the podcast. For those of you out there that are listening that have been following TLD Group for a while, you know that we oftentimes cite the work that you are doing, both at Rethink Health and at Foresight. You are an inspiration and a really innovative thinker, and we're, we're hoping that the work that we're doing on our health ecosystem leadership can support the work that Rethink Health has really pioneered in the industry. So this is incredibly exciting for me. 
However, for those of our listeners that are not familiar with the work of Ripple Foundation, could you describe a bit about what the organization does, its mission, and its focus? I'm happy to do that. And Tracy, thank you for the great introduction and your warm words. It's um, I take them to heart. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, so let, let me give, give a little bit of the story of Ripple. So, so the Ripple Foundation has been around about 65 years. Started as a family foundation. We are no longer, the family is no longer involved, hasn't been for a while. But but you know, our 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 background, our legal mission is around uh, hospitals, cancer, heart disease, women and elderly. And, and that still is our legal mission. Around 10 years ago, when I had been on the board for 10 years and then was asked to step into the role of president, I started to look at the history of the organization. At that time, we were a very traditional, small grant-making organization. We were funding cancer research and, and you know, do, doing, doing interesting, targeted grants. But I kind of felt that we had an opportunity to actually have greater impact and went back into the history of the organization to say, who were these people? Who founded it? Kind of where did this come from? And importantly, we found in that the, the writings of the first president, Julius A. Ripple, family member, who ran the, pres- the foundation for the first 30 years. And in those years, it was from 1953 to 1983, he would every year write a letter to the board, his annual letter to the board, which was partially an annual report, but mostly it was an observation of what was going on in the world that the board should be paying attention to. And starting in 1959 and in 1962 and in 1963, Julius Ripple was saying, for a long time, we've known that the health system does not serve people, but serves its own interests. That we need to create a system that for health, not just for health care, because that's the only way we're going to solve our country's problems. That the health system we're creating is fundamentally unsustainable, and we need to look at different ways of creating structures that distribute care in communities and different kind of leadership and different kind of providers, and went on and on and on. And, you know, we read this, and, and I read this, the board went along on this journey, and we started to say, you know, the problem isn't that we don't know what to do. We know what to do. We've known for 50 years what to do. I have it in writing in my office, um, but we don't know how to get there. And that there's significant barriers that get in the way of that change. And, and the board began to experiment with trying to understand actually then how do we get folks to do what it is we know we need to do as opposed to continuously reinventing the same solutions and re-identifying the same problems, which we do over and over and over and over again. So we've been on that journey, started it with our partners who formed Rethink Health, brilliant thinkers included Elliot Fisher and Don Berwick, but also Nobel laureate Eleanor Ostrom and Marshall Gans and Peter Sange and Jay Ogilvy, who was a founding member of the Global Business Network and and I'm forgetting others, but started by really looking at the parallels between development in the environment and how, what, how the environment was ahead of health um, at that point in time, probably still is, and, and how we need to really start taking a step back and saying, what are the big questions that we need to ask? And if we were able to answer those questions, what might really make a big difference? And that group of thinkers came together over about a two-year period, mostly to talk with each other. And our job was to convene them and then to take their ideas into the field and bring them to life. 
that was where Rethink Health came from, um, which was really a commitment that we saw that they led to, to working regionally, to working with leaders, to looking at the system as a whole, to taking new ideas forward. Um, and that has then sparked the, the, the subsequent development of the work we do. So, so as a long answer to your question, Ripple has really evolved. Our work now is focused very much on systemic change and how to make it happen and how we can really be a catalyst for moving those kind of activities forward, knowing that we cannot make the change, but that we can support and help leaders who are in a position to make change be more effective in doing what they're trying to accomplish. And that's, that's where our work is focused. You know, it's it's really interesting to hear the journey because in your storytelling about this board, quote unquote, coming together to create the idea behind Rethink Health, they actually decided with you at the helm to utilize this idea of convening, right? Convening great thinkers to then create a process that could be uh, replicable out in the world to help other organizations create solutions to their pressing problems. And it all starts with an idea. So it's, it's, it's a think tank that turned into a, a consulting firm that provides actual services to others to help them do this work. Very, very close. Yeah, I, I think there are really three aspects to our work that, that um, as we see, you know, we kind of divided into R&D and place-based work and then influence and, and are very clear, at least at this moment, that we don't want to be, we don't be, want to be the McKinsey's of the health system. We don't want to do en masse, you know, replicable trainings that go on and on and on working with whoever shows up. Um, we really want to work at with the, the, the people at the frontiers of the field to try to figure out the problems they can't solve by working together with them and to codify and, and gather that information in a way that we can share with others so that others can take it up and actually then use it to, to advance their own work. Um, we put a fair amount of our time into actually trying to identify what the barriers are and to research and test different solutions um, or different ways of thinking. And then we bring that into the field with carefully chosen partners who we choose and they choose us to say, you know, can we make this real in the field? And then how do we learn from that and then share that learning with others? So, so um, it's an interesting formula because it kind of spans consulting and academia and communications. And for our size, we actually have a lot of diverse talent that it requires to take that kind of work forward. Yeah, no, no, no. It's it's yeah. a wonderful continuous cycle the, because yeah. the, the work is never done. The theory is constantly being developed based upon what you find with every group that you work with. It's a fascinating organization. Exactly. I am, uh, I'm, yeah. really, I'm really energized talking to you about it. So, so I want to learn a little bit more about what your role is because you have this organization that has different um, elements to it. And, and how does it all come together with you at, you know, you leading it? Oh, wow. Great question. So when I started here, again, I guess maybe 11 years ago, there were four people. We now have 25 on staff and about another 10 contractors we work with on an ongoing basis. 
We had a little office in an industrial park off the highway in New Jersey. We're now in a green building in downtown Morristown. And half of our staff is here. Well, this is going to be too many halves, but half of our staff is in an office in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And then I have staff members in six states around the country, California and upstate New York and Rhode Island and, you know, just all over. We have chosen to engage people because of their talents and their passion, their commitment, as opposed to their location, which has created wonderful opportunities and challenging problems. We did not set out to create a major institution, to create Rethink Health, to create Foresight. Um, we set out to try to figure out how to have an impact on systems and make them change. And you show up every day and you do what you do and, and somehow the growth happens. But the journey, you know, besides all the administrative things that need to be taken care of at the same time, we were literally doing our investments on long sheets of uh, letter paper in pencil. When I got here, we're kind of moved very far away from that, but you appreciate the, the, the journey coming so far. So we've gone through a lot of change and there have been ups and downs. And, and we're essentially a startup entrepreneurial company, well beyond startup now, embedded into an old established foundation, um, which has been an interesting cultural ride in itself uh, with a great and supportive board. So, so my role, you know, my role, I think, has been pretty consistent. And, and it really started when I was sitting on the board because I sat on the board for 10 years and kept saying, there's got to be something more we can do with this money that's going to have greater impact than what we're doing. And, and having 10 years to just think about that was pretty incredible. But also having the vision and, and the word guts comes to mind to say, let's try something different. Let's just go for it. Let's see if we can get people in the room. Let's see if we can have this conversation. Let's take Marshall Gans's idea and say, okay, you got a president elected. What can you do in health? You've never worked in health. Let's see if we can make something happen. Or, or taking, you know, Peter Sange's ideas or um, you know, the whole system dynamics team at MIT who we worked with to develop a system dynamics model of the health system, which has been hugely impactful in our thinking, but also in others is like, let's just see if we can do that. Let's try things. And, and it was through the, 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 the willingness to try, the willingness to put, to take a stand, many of which succeeded, many of which failed, to acknowledge that the failures or they were the wrong direction, to then start to look at where the successes were and to, and to bring the pieces of them together. So we didn't say, oh, we're going to follow Marshall Gans down this path, and we're going to follow Peter Sangi down that path. Say, this part of what Peter's doing is awesome in health, and this part of what Marshall is doing is awesome in health. But we need to bring those together, mm -hmm. and we need to create something new out of that that really takes on the spirit of, of what folks in health are trying to accomplish. And this is community health and health systems, the whole gamut population health, you know, and is actually able to then adapt to all the differences that, that exist in regions, because ultimately every region is different and what works one place will not necessarily work another. So it's been an evolutionary process. I think that the, the leadership that I've brought is, is, I think, my own capacity to see systems, which I think people are born with or they're not born with, and, and that that's something just I can probably thank my father for. And that's a whole other story, but um, so the ability to to sort of see options, to surround myself with awesomely smart people, 
um, and to trust them and support them and enable them, which I think my primary job is to enable them, to do that within a context of uh, a vision and a structure that provides support, and also to be able to provide the resources so that that we we are able to do what what we can do. We have been very much about leverage, not only in how we work with people so that we work to enable others, but we also have leveraged Ripple's resources. So we have now doubled our budget um, from where we started by partnering with other like-minded organizations and partnerships doing some fee-based work and just opened up that horizon which nobody ever thought about for 65, 60 years. Like, could we actually really do that? Can a foundation raise money? Well, yeah, you can, unless your charter forbids it. You know, can we take a fee-for-service job? Sure, unless your charter, you know, or board prohibits it. And we've been, we've been blessed to be able to actually explore some of those opportunities that's taken us forward. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I think my leadership comes from believing in other people and, being a bit of a visionary, I get accused of being a little too far ahead of my folks sometimes, and also nudgy, you know, you nudge people along and say, hey, you can do it better, you can do more, like, let's try a different idea, let's, what if that doesn't work, what are the alternative paths we can take, and how we keep moving that forward. Yeah, and I think uh, you're clearly not afraid to take risks. So that's a, that's a big one. You, yeah. you know, you've done so much work at Ripple and then in particular at Rethink and Foresight is newer to me, but I'm wondering what you would say are the key criteria for success for these regional systems to be successful in their mission of creating health and wellness in the communities that they're serving. That's a that's a huge question. It is. Um, it's a it's a huge question, and and um, I can I let me talk about elements of where I think we know things and elements of where we don't know things. So it, it's pretty clear, and it's it's um, when we started this ten years ago, nobody was talking about population health. Nobody was talking about social determinants of health. That the idea of thinking about that the system was anything more than a healthcare system, you know, which is only going to be the major hospital. It's not even the community clinic. I mean, that's where we were ten years ago when we started this work. We have come a long way as as a nation. I think the the conversation is much more. It's much broader. It's much more informed. Um, folks know um, that we need to look at both the upstream and the downstream dynamics in health system if we're gonna have an affordable, sustainable, equitable system that actually helps people stay healthy instead of treats them when they get sick. So I think we bought, we bought that. Again, not everybody, but it's really become pretty accepted. Um, the place where we are now is, we kind of have no idea how to actually do that. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that the, the pieces we have in place the incentives aren't in line, the folks aren't in line, we don't have the relationships across sectors, people don't speak the same language, we don't know how to actually get out of our own way to actually partner with others, you know, that, that, that financing mechanisms and strategies need to shift. And we all are charged, I am, you are, with also still protecting our own organization. We've still got to make payroll. I still have to, to deliver my goods. And how do we actually, this, that's the, sort of the, the management aspect of it. It's like, how do I embrace a different kinds of relationships and different ways of operating 
that ultimately are better for everybody and understand the trade-offs internally that I'm willing to make that still let me meet my bottom line and keep my people happy and deliver quality and all those things. That, that's, that's challenge number one. I think challenge number two is, is really the whole question of moving upstream. Um, so, so as part of this population health insight, which again, I, I think we've been part of helping share that, very excited oh, by yes. that. I think it's totally right. Julia Say Ripple was saying it 60 years ago. Yes. Um, we, you know, there's something right-headed about that. But, but here you start getting now to then, okay, what do I actually do? If we're talking about social determinants, we're talking about fundamental economics in our country. We're talking about, you know, race, structural racism. We are talking about, you know, poverty, education, transportation, you know, you just the long list. Um, you know, the war on poverty, we go back to the war on poverty, you know, 1960s and how many decades of work we put in. And this is, I started in poverty programs and employment programs. That was my first real job after spending a year teaching school, which I found I was terrible at, middle school. <laughs> Me with, you know, like 12 and 13 year olds, it's not a great yeah. thing. So growing up through that is, is we keep doing the same programs over and over again. I see us reinventing what I was doing in 1972 in, in Alameda, California. And it didn't work then and it doesn't work now. So individuals get help, but in terms of really making systemic changes, we are fundamentally challenged. If we knew how to do it, we would have done it by now. So, so part of what, you know, we're seeing, and this kind of takes into foresight is, you know, part of the work we're doing is like, how do we really think into that, think differently and actually try and change certainly a lot of the relationships and the conversation. How do you bring health systems together with community and, and, and let them each know and appreciate the others so that there actually can be a dialogue, which most people don't do. How do we actually look at creating a portfolio that can actually have impact on a system that people can figure out how to finance and implement? You know, how do you actually finance things? There's foundations, government. It's like, you got to show results in two years. We give you a grant for three years and we're out. You know, or I've got to produce my four and a half percent bottom line, five percent bottom line every year, or else my bond rating goes down, which does not create an opportunity for long-term investment. And we know the population health impacts can take five years, 10 years. In the case of kids, they may take 50 or 60 years. So we've got some real structural challenges here. Where, where foresight came from, and let me just talk a minute about that, is it's new. It's a, it's a collaboration right now of 15 foundations from across the country. And we have representation from all of the country, and including, including Alaska, which we are really thrilled by who have come together and said, um, the world we're in is changing. The tools we have to work with are changing. The, the impacts that these trends will have on our country are potentially huge. Demographics alone um, is gonna have a huge impact. Talk about technology, we talk about climate change. When we think about the conversations that most leaders in health are having, foundations, health systems, insurance companies, whatever, some of that sometimes shows up, but that's not at the core of how we're thinking about what's going on. But if we, if we look at 
how to better understand where we might be 10 or 15 years from now, but understand the tools we have that are available, we might be able to come up with some ways to actually address some of these problems that we're talking about, which means fundamentally differently thinking about who we partner with, fundamentally thinking differently about how we solve community problems, fundamentally thinking differently about how we finance them and what we do and what's acceptable and what's value-driven and where our values lie. So I'll give, I, I give a, a, a great example that I've shared in, from history, which is when um, the first ATMs were introduced in Newark, New Jersey. And the expectation, they put one of the very early ones, whichever bank it was, in the lobby of the Prudential Building. Mm -hmm. um, and the expectation was that the white executives in the Prudential Buildings were all computer savvy and they would come down and they would use this ATM and it would be all very cool. And they'd have their market test and prove that this is a viable way of doing banking. And what they found was that the people who used the ATM machine were all the black men from the neighborhood. Right. Right? And the reason was they didn't have to walk into a bank. They didn't have to deal with a security guard. They didn't have to deal with the teller. They didn't, they didn't have to go through, through the, the overt or subliminal experience of being a black male in downtown Newark trying to, trying to get their banking done. And that they were able, actually able to solve and, and deal with their banking issues without having to change the entire culture of Newark, which still hasn't changed. You know, right? I mean, we look at Uber develop, you know, delivering food or Amazon developing drugs. You know, there are, there are solutions now that are emerging. We know that Blacks use cell phones more to access jobs, job information, health information, service information than, than any other population group. So why aren't we really looking at the inner city social determinant issues and saying, is there technology? Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But how do we start looking at the inner city as a market for technology that might help us address issues or a partnership with Uber or a partnership with Amazon or whoever replaces them, God knows who that's going to be, you know, soon, um, to actually try and figure out new ways to solve problems because what we're doing now is dealing with an old system and often applying old solutions that are going to have marginal impact necessary, important, good, not going to solve our problems going forward. It's interesting. I was at the Jefferson College of Population Health Colloquium last week, and they were talking about, you know, there is no such thing as a magic bullet. And I remember back in the early 80s when I was in my master's program for public health, everybody was talking about that, right? It was the Paul Starr book that all about the magic bullet. And I thought to myself, my God, that is like 40 plus years ago. Like we're still talking about the same thing. It's unbelievable to me. But, but I think what's, what is encouraging, and I, I'm, of course, a, you know, a serial optimist, is that there are more people talking today about the things that you started talking about you know, 20 years or 50 years ago when the Ripple Foundation you know, started, which is all about social determinants and how things have to come together if you're really going to move, move on these indicators of health and, and wellness. Um, and I'm sure that in, in, uh, in, in other other focus areas such as the environment, they're 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 looking at the same sorts of things, right? So how do we actually enhance our you know global warming if we don't start looking at everything that impacts the system? That's right. Um, and and you as a systems thinker, this is right up your alley. Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you, you had a wonderful TED talk 
um, that we, we all watched here at, at TLD Group. And I encourage everybody else to look at it as well, because it's fantastic. And you talk about, you know, seeing only one part of the elephant. I love that Hindu parable. Um, so I wanted you to tell us how you think the work of Rethink Health and now Foresight that you just talked about is expanding the view of the elephant and how your, your work helps leaders to better understand the importance of change. So, you know, kind of at, at the core of, of system thinking is, is this belief that you have to be able to see the system you're operating in and know where you fit in, in, in it if you are going to have any impact on it. And there was a, a wonderful John Sturman, who is, heads the system dynamics group at MIT, gave a great talk at, at the Grand Rounds and talked about the parallel between pumps and pipes and health. And what he talked about is the decisions that companies make, which is, do I go in and do early maintenance on my pump, even though it hasn't broken yet? But I do routine maintenance because I want to keep my pump, quote, healthy, right? And that if I do that, I have to do an upfront investment. It's going to cost me more now. The pump may or may not broke, right? We don't know. But if I do that, then, you know, maybe I'm going to have impact. But that's not how leaders behave. They wait till the pump breaks. And then you have to close the factory for three weeks while you fix the pump and you lose all the revenue and everything like that. Um, and he used that as sort of a model about how do you think about systems and how do you think about how to intervene in systems? And I thought that really brought it home as in terms of a health example of, of how do we decide where to invest and what, what to do. I think in terms of, you know, kind of seeing the elephant, if, if my job is only to look at the end product or my job is only to look at the pump or my job is only to look at the pipe, I don't think about the other parts of the system that could actually make, make a difference. I think about my piece in it. And we've had, had a great hundred plus years of breaking people's bodies as well as breaking our health system into little pieces. So I, I had a, a, I had a very bad ankle fracture two years ago and um, had a great surgeon who pieced my 23 pieces of my ankle bone back together. So I'm actually walking again. And he was very clear. It's like, all I do is piece the bones together. And I put it in the screws, I put it in the plate, and I don't do anything else. And I don't, I don't know how to make you walk, and I don't know how to deal with anything else, but I know how to put your ankle back together with, with, with you know, pins and plates. And at that moment, I needed pins and plates. That was really great. But it didn't make me walk again, and it didn't make me healthy again, and it didn't deal with the growing arthritis in my ankle. And, you know, we, we've done that. We've done that really well and cut that up. And I, and I think that... Um, that we know, we know, we know, no, no, that that's not the way the real world works. We know that our bodies don't work that way. We know that our, our health systems don't work that way. We know that things are connected and, and we've tried to bring those together. So how do we systematically and comfortably break down those, those silos that we have created and we protect? We protect. I had that in academia. Um, I, I was running an entrepreneurial center, which is by definition interdisciplinary. You know, and how do you get like the finance department to cooperate with the marketing department to cooperate with the management department because they're all trying to get their own research published because those those are the, the you know the, the demands of their field. So this is a this is a problem we've created for ourselves. 
So part of, I think, a lot of what we did, and I think it started with this model that I talked about, this Rethink Health model, which is available online. People can see it, interact with it, play with it, which, which took years, decades of historical research activities, evidence-based materials, and built this interactive model where somebody who can walk into a room and say, look, I, am, I totally know that if everybody changed their behavior, we would fix all the systems and health problems, we wouldn't have to worry. And so, you know, you can actually move the lever that says everybody changes their behavior and you find you don't have that big an impact, you know, or that hospice is the answer because it deals with end of life. It has almost no impact on costs. It's a great thing to do. doesn't really change our health system at all. Or, you know, if we look at, at payment reform, what that does. So, so we've been able to actually walk into rooms with very diverse people, with very diverse points of view, um, and we do this with different ways, with different tools to actually say, okay, you know, this is how it really works. This is where you think you sit now. Is that the right place you want to be sitting? We have, we have sort of a pie map that breaks down um, sort of the necessary services and, and, and those things that are more preventive, like urgent services and, and sort of necessary conditions. And, you know, people are working in one piece of the pie. The pie has, I don't know, 24 different slices on it. And you're working over there and you say to people, okay, where do you think you should be working if you're really gonna make a difference? And they, they always put their dots on the other side of the pie. And, and it's the ability to even just start those conversations, to put the nudges in place, to create the vision that, oh, maybe there's something else I should be doing that's bigger in terms of the system. You know, it's, it's sort of the complex adaptive systems of nudges. Is if, if, if you can get, if you can move enough people and nudge them in the right direction, something different is going to happen. You don't know what, but you're going to move something in the right direction. And that's a lot of what we end up doing. So, so that's, that's sort of, you know, uh, a, a frame for that. Um, I know, do you have a follow-up question? I'm not sure. Yeah, no, no, no. It, it, it's, yeah. Um, it's actually, that's a beautiful example of, uh, of how to convene groups in a different way of thinking and being. And much of what you talked about uh, today has been really about the importance of people, right? People connecting, people partnering, people collaborating, yeah. people yeah. stepping outside yeah. of their boundaries yeah. that are either real yeah. or, or 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 made up in their minds. Yeah. Um, working through, you know, different types of uh, incentives, etc. It, it it comes down to people, right? It, it, it's not yes, the stru- the the structure, the process, and and uh, the alignment of, of of mission and vision, all of that is important. But at the end of the day, it's one person speaking to another person yes. and and engaging them and motivating them to yes. do things differently. So, I, I guess my question for you is: How do we retrain people? But what we really need is a mindset shift. So, mm-hmm. how do we do it? Yeah. So, so there, there's some, some great the stories that come to mind as you're talking. If, if um, you go back to Marshall Gans and the Obama election, and Marshall came up with the concept of Camp Obama, which, is, which was really interesting. And these were people who were interested in supporting Obama's election. And, um, you know, and this isn't a political story. It just happens to be that he was for Obama and working with Obama. And um, they, they would be asked to go to like a two-day um, training camp, boot camp. 
um, before they went out and talked about Obama. And everybody thinks, okay, well, they're going to go there. And what they're going to do is they're going to tell me about Obama and how great he is and the 10 reasons I should vote for him, what his platform is and where he went to school and where he's born and all those issues. And what they did is they, they walked you in the room and they started saying, like, why are you here? Tell me about you. Tell me about your story. Tell me why this is important to you. Tell me why you even care. Why are you here? And that's starting with with a personal narrative, which is which is all about what he's about. Is that is that where we connect as people and how we connect with others is to first understand our own story and why we're showing up, and to then put that into the context of why is what I am asking for important to me. And then into the context of why is it important for the country? And then into if this is important for me and it's important for us and it's important for the country, then here's what we need to do. It's, it's a very elegant structure. Peter Sange, who, who was one of our original founding folks, who talked about creating um, you know, learning corporations and, and ultimately came down to the same thing. It's how people talk one-on-one, -on -one, how they build relationships. Eleanor Ostrom, who talked about sustainable commons, first woman in economics to win the Nobel Prize for that, documented communities where people were dependent on each other for their livelihood. They shared a field or a fishery or a lobster, or whatever a lobster thing is, um, you know, and water. And, and that when people have a codependence, it is possible for them to get into a room together and to create structures that government can't do. And this is what you demonstrate. Government can't do it. Um, the market can't do it. But together, they can come together and say, we are all dependent on the fisheries you know, working, lobster boats working. And so therefore, we have to cooperate because this is the only way we will all survive. And, and part of her theory, which I love, is that is that not only do they agree, but they also create rules and sanctions. They create norms, so that you know if you if you like go out of order in where your lobster boat's supposed to go, like the first thing I get to do is like tie a pink ribbon on your lobster traps. Is that super embarrassing, you know? And it goes all the way up to I have a right to sink your lobster boat because you are screwing up the whole system for the rest of us and. And that they agree on that. So if you take those sort of principles and you bring them into, into the work, you start to think differently about, okay, why am I showing up? Why do I care? Why do I do this? How do I bring that into the culture that actually can now start shifting what we do? And we do this with groups. I mean, we, this, these are group exercises you can do. They're also one-on-one -on -one that you can do. And they go, they go a, a long way. There's a great story I was just writing about this morning. I'm actually putting together for my board of, oh gosh, maybe it was almost 10 years ago. We did a report on health leadership in New Jersey. Just, just one know what was going on. We ran interviews some folks. And out of that, one of the things we found was that the hospital association, the insurance association, and the payer association had been in sort of a mortal battle for 12 years because at one point one director didn't did something that the other didn't, director didn't like, and they just decided that for the next 12 years they weren't going to talk to each other. Um, true story. And the, for, if anybody hears this, maybe the details may be a little off, but it's a true story. Um, and yes, but we, you know, we, we surfaced this, we talked with some of them and we ended up really simple thing. We hosted a dinner at one of the best restaurants in New Jersey. 
We deliberately sat people next to each other. We gave them an assignment to talk about who they were as people. We served a lot of wine. And now 10 years later, they have created a joint leadership program that is being run by Seton Hall. It's in its, its third year that is training leaders in those three industries actually how to understand and better work together to solve problems across the state of New Jersey. You know, it's sometimes it's as easy as like invite people to dinner and serve a bottle of wine. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. No, I couldn't agree with you more. It's it's interesting when we when we run our our, our academy programs or we're bringing people together uh, that, that may not know each other even in, in the same organization. Right. You know the you, the biggest value add is you ask participants when they graduate is is the networking opportunity. Right. It's not the didactic training that they did, or it, it's it's about getting together and solving problems together. Yeah. And it could be over a nice glass of wine, but it is about getting to know people because once you know people you can then begin to work together and convene appropriate solutions through collaboration. It's, That's exactly uh, right. It's and fascinating. we've had the same thing. We, we, we've done, you know, done major programs across the country with regions. And a couple of things we find. Um, we find this, I did a big conference with the Tulkwandi and Don Berwick years ago. And, and you, know, you, you say you have to bring five people from your region to this meeting. And they get to the meeting, they've never talked to each other. They've never met each other, right? You know, and, and then, and, and it's amazing. They never, they just don't know each other. And then you go to the end of it and they, and it, I absolutely agree with you. It's the most valuable thing was being in the room with other people and, and being able to work with my team in a safe environment, but also be able to cross fertilize ideas and connect with these people from across the country. And number one, every single time. Yeah, yes. it's true. It's true. What what other suggestions do you have for how regional leaders can manage to create buy-in to to for these cross-sector coalitions, and what can they do in terms of implementing these change elements that you're talking yeah. about? So, so we actually have I have right here in front of me a um, a book called Essential Practices Transform Regional Health. Um, which is a product of our Ventures Project, which was a three-year project working with six multi-sector coalitions from around the country that Robert Johnson funded. And Robert Johnson has been an amazing partner for Ripple and particularly for Rethink Health. And, you know, it really talks about, about four, four buckets. One is clear values, um, which is really you know, what, what is our vision? What are we really aligning around? Can we align around a vision and a set of values that we all agree on? And, and bringing the multiple and diverse people in the room together to do that. A second is broad stewardship, which is really the commitment that you have to work across boundaries. We can't just talk to ourselves anymore. And that's true not only um, in the population health space, the, the latest chartists group report on what health systems should be paying attention to talks. One of the key things they predict for 2019 is that people need to work in different kinds of partnership that are completely unfamiliar and alien. And we just need to figure out how to do that because that's where the future lies, whether it's, you know, whoever it is in the community or in the company or pay or whatever. The third thing we talk about is sound strategy. So that most of us don't really have strategy. Quite honestly, we have activities, we have reactions, we do what seems to work at the time. And what that can often do is spread us very thin, spread our resources very thin. So we do a lot of the 
um, you know, we do a lot of things, but don't do it very deeply or do it very long, as opposed to really trying to understand that, you know, the things that are actually going to affect population health in my community are these five things, and how do I actually create some focus and alignment around that and, and do that? And there are ways to actually develop those portfolios and those insights that we, we can work on. And the fourth one is sustainable financing, which we talked about a little bit earlier, which, you know, are there alternative ways to think about financing? Mm -hmm. And and most, you know, unfortunately, uh, certainly a lot of the folks we've worked with in in regions, you know, but also in in the health systems is, is, you know, we either get grants, right, or we get paid for care we deliver. There's still a fee-for-service mentality, even if it's in a value-based contract. We know there are other ways to start thinking about. There are ways to start thinking about, could we, we did some work on, could you create a population health tax credit that would actually Mm -hmm. feed ongoing resources from, you know, from the private sector into something differently? Is there a way to actually look at those in the nonprofit sector? This goes back to some of my early work to actually look at negotiating feed for services or shared savings mm-hmm. from the community perspective, not from the, the payer perspective. Is there a way for health systems, LISC, um, Maurice Jones, the head of LISC, is now working with health systems, major health systems across the country to ask them to take part of their investment portfolios to take a slightly less return, like instead of 4.5%, and to invest it in housing and economic development in their region. But by doing that, maybe they take $10 million, but through the CDFIs and the Community Investment Act and the banks and the whatever, they're leveraging the $60, $70 million investment in the community because they're thinking differently and creatively about how do we use money and how do we finance. So a lot of I think where we've seen success and impact is bringing people together to talk about, do we have a shared vision of values, to actually talking about what stewardship means and how we work together, to talk about what is a strategy, and it has to be evidence-based in some way, but at the same time, if we know that the stuff we've done in the past doesn't really work, if we're only looking at evidence, we'll never do anything new because new things don't have any evidence until you've done them. So, you know, you got to balance that out. And then to get a little bit more creative about this whole financing thing, because the money is there. We're just not necessarily using it for the right things in the right places. You know, it's interesting. When I think about my my tenure working within the, the health industry, I know that some of the best CEOs that I had the pleasure of interviewing or getting to know over the course of my career were always those that were thinking ahead of the curve. These were the CEOs that were willing to take risks and they innovated and they knew what they didn't know. So they brought in people to help complement where they may have had some weaknesses along the way. So, it, you know, it's really important to be able to grow the leaders of the future, but also to be able to provide advice and counsel to those that are maybe coming in a little bit older, maybe a different way of thinking. And that's not an ageist comment at all. It's just, you know, there's different, different ways that we've grown leaders along over time. So my question is, what advice can you offer to leaders who want to change, but they're working in an environment that's stuck in the past? Um, How do they start the change process? There's sort of like a just do it. That's kind of sticking in my head, which is part of the answer. And that's probably a little too flip. Um, um, you know, but there, there is part of that. There is, like you say, there, there are, 
there there are a couple things that um, that depend, I think, on where we are in this change curve. So there are always going to be a group of pioneers. There's going to be a group of, of sort of the, the emergent pioneers who are willing to take the risk. Um, for those folks, there are ways to um, provide tools, to provide support, to help them figure out how to engage others. Um, we're in a kind of we're have an MOU now with with Jefferson in Philadelphia, where our work is to both looking how to shift the cultural internally to be more focused on population health. They actually, the CEO's compensation is tied to progress in compensation health, which is pretty bold. Um, but they're also saying, you know, we need to change our internal actions. We also need to change our donors understanding and our board's understanding. So you've got to work across all aspects of the organization, and there's a little bit of a push-pull that, that goes on with that. So I think that's, that, that's one. Um, I think the other thing that we really need is to be able to point to exemplars, you know, and they need to look enough like, it can't just be the Mayo Clinic in Vermont, right? You know, it's gotta be real people who are dealing with real issues that look enough like my issues that I can figure out that, oh, if they can do it, I can do it too. Um, and it will always look a little bit different, but we need to build those exemplars. We need to support those at the frontier to go out there and, and, and you know, push the boundaries so that we can now point to them and say, look, they're normal people, they could do it, you can do it too. If we can get a second wave of that, then the third wave, it gets much easier because it's now become the norm. And we've got to go through those cycles of change. So, so, so I think that's um, that's a big answer to your question. I think the second a second piece of this, which has been critical for me and critical for the work we do, is to not just talk to people in health. Get out of the box of health. There is just it is it's an insulated box with its own jargon and its own reinforcing messages. You go to conferences, you hear the same people over and over and over again, saying the same things over and over and over again. I mean, we in both Foresight and Rethink Health deliberately um, didn't exclude the health people because they're important, but reached into, you know, Peter Sangi's world. We reached into, you know, Jay Ogilvie created scenario planning with Shell Oil. How did you bring that in? We reached into politics. We had Celinda Lake, who a, was a pollster. She was a political pollster in the room to talk about how you change attitudes. You know, of like, just, just break your own mold um, and put yourself in different environments because that's where the new opportunities, the new mindsets, the new ideas are going to come from. And if you're doing it in places with people who are exciting and successful and have that same passion, it also provides the support and the energy. This is lonely work. This is really hard. It's really lonely and it's really scary. Um, and we are often putting our own institutions as well as our own jobs at risk. And to create that community of support is really, I think, critically important. Coaches are great, so I highly recommend that. Um, but, but I think, you know, sort of how do we look, look bigger and pull in ideas that have been successful elsewhere? Healthcare is behind most of the rest of the country in terms of how we function. And, and population health is, is, is way behind. And so there are things out there we can beg, borrow, and steal that have already been proven. And to just be open and embrace those. And, um, and I, think, I think a third thing, and this goes back to kind of my academic days in, in corporate venturing, 
is to recognize sort of the corporate venturing mindset, which is really how do you start something new in a big established organization? And there's lots of literature history in, in the business world, but, but seeding the seeding the and supporting the experiments. Like really saying, okay, I'm not going to change the whole organization at once, but I'm going to take this division, or I'm going to create a new division, and it's going to have you know cross-organizational influence, but it's going to do this thing, and I'm going to really personally support it because that's what it needs, and I'm going to protect it. But let's see if we can make this work. And 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 if that works, then we can start filtering the learning from that across the organization. It also exposes the organization to that there's a different way of functioning. And that's a that's that's you know there are challenges with that. There's success and failures, but it's a it's a way of easing into radical change. That for something particularly like a health system, less so. But even so, for community organizations, it creates a safe environment to actually move things forward. You know, and even again, in our little organization, Foresight was nurtured for two years by a very small group before we kind of rolled it out because we didn't want to disrupt the whole organization. Yeah. So it's like you got to nurture and bring things along. So. Okay. And you, you do a great job of practicing what you preach, which is, I think is incredible. And, and actually, I'm going to end with this question, which is you have done an incredible job at Ripple with the growth and development of Rethink and Foresight. And I can't wait to see what's yet to come under your leadership. What do you want your legacy to be uh, as a leader in the health industry? It's, it's such a great question. It's such a hard question. You know, my, probably my life story has been that there's a better way to do things than we're doing them now. And I've worked very hard in many different ways to try and figure out how to make that happen and, and actually feel pretty good about, about what I've been able to accomplish. Um, you know, I, I think the, the legacy for Ripple is, is, um, that it continues on this path, that it that, that, that I put in motion, just like we're talking about for these others, that I've done enough of my own nudge with Ripple, that it continues on this path of really trying to solve this challenging, difficult human economic problem um, that is so critical to our country. And it's not going to go away with single payer and it's not going to go away with ACA repeal and reform and revise. We're talking about really some very fundamental shifts in how we create health and create a healthy, productive population. And these are human problems that, that, that exist at scale. And if we can have some small impact on actually having that kind of change, that's an awesome place to be and to feel really good about. And I hope my kids can look back, you know, 50 years and go and say, hey, my mom helped make that happen. That would Aww. be totally awesome. So. That, that, that sounds like that fits your personality perfectly. Um, and, and, at, and at some point in time, we'll have to have a glass of wine because I do want to hear about your dad's impact on, on who you are today. You mentioned that early on. Um, but that's probably a whole nother conversation. I, I want to just um, end by saying thank you. Thank you for the work that you do for translating the empirical research 
into uh, practical application to continuing to do that work. So it's, we're continuously learning from everything that you do and we will stay closely connected given, given the work that we do at TLD group, of course. And I can't, again, I can't thank you enough for your hour of time today. I know you're really busy and thank you. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. Of course. Okay. Take care. For those of you interested in learning more about leadership, please visit us at TLD Group's website. Join us for more interviews with health ecosystem leaders during our podcast series. And of course, stay tuned for the release of our book entitled From Competition to Collaboration, How Leaders Cultivate Cross-Sector Partnerships to Deliver Value and Transform Health. Thank you for joining us.